We got a lot of things that that we could talk about this morning, even and kind of lament to put our put our hearts toward. I mean, that's not we're not done praying. We're still going to pray in this text today. Um, this week also was a celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and um, talked about ways that if you know anything about if you've been around me this week, like I've been always fired up about how that we can uh, do the work of joining joining Jesus really in the cause of reconciliation. Second um, Corinthians chapter five it talks about that we have a ministry of reconciliation because we are those that have been reconciled. You know the, the believers in the world because we have been offered such a great just justice from God, like we were far away and He broke down a wall of hostility and we'll get into this some today. Ruled in our favor. The judgment on the believer is that you've, you've been ruled in favor of. Isn't that a good news? It should be really good news. And because justice and injustice between us and the Lord has been eradicated by the blood of Jesus, then the life of the believer is to join the cause of justice anywhere and everywhere we see it. Um, because that's what our king does. He, he goes after it. But his, his, me- his message of justice is not just fix the temporary. His message of justice is to fix the eternal. And, uh, and so this week, I'm just reminded of that. Um, always kind of have this attitude when it comes to even the, the understanding of, of tensions across backgrounds and ethnicities and nationalities in our nation is that most of us in this room probably don't have a long history of contributing to issues of um, racial injustice or racial sin. Most of us probably you know, none of us were fighting or, or took sides in, in the 1850s and 1860s. None of us, you know, were, well, few of us were around in the Jim Crow era in the 1950s and 60s here in the United States. And so it's easy to sit back and say, ah, I didn't, you know, I wasn't really around. I don't really know. Um, but I think for us as believers, certainly for us as, a ch- as the church, not just a church, but as the church, I think the move this week and joining the both lament and also the, the motivation in the gospel is to recognize that there are tons of things in our life, racism being one, that we didn't cause. They aren't my fault. They aren't necessarily your fault. But because you're believing in Jesus, they are your responsibility. They are our responsibility. Um, in the same way that, that injustice everywhere, as, as Dr. King said himself, is a threat to justice anywhere, we go as couriers of the kingdom to say that there are things on this campus, there are things in this city that might not have anything to do with, with a, a civil rights battle, but might be a place where we can say, you know, it's not my fault that things are that way. But it can be my responsibility to come in and be a good news person and to be evangelistic, and not just with the you need Jesus, which is absolutely true, but with also a um, here's what it looks like for the kingdom of God to come. And that battle is not just... Between skin color, we've seen that battle this week with the court system in New York. Um, we've seen that battle all over the place. And even, even that, like, I just want to take a moment and, and say, like, obviously, clearly my heart is grieved with, with some of the legislation that has gone down in our country this week concerning the life, uh, the recognition of life in, in pregnancy. And on that same subject, though, like, if we're going to commit to being pro-life people, if we're going to be committed to that, that we commit to serve and to help and to adopt and to foster and to do all the things, not just say you should believe this, but also to act 
in a way that says, when the kingdom of God steps in, it raises everything across the board. And so I just want to invite us to pray for that as well as we get into today. And speaking of of new life, many of you are wondering, we did get to welcome a new life into our midst this week. So Kurt and Lauren had uh, Roy Curtis Vernon V, and uh, also known as Wynn, and he was uh, born Monday morning at around 6.30, 7 pounds, 6 ounces, 22 inches long. Um, and so it's great to have, great to have him in, with us, but not with us today, but with us. And so Kurt and Lauren will be back and showing went off at some point in the near future. Um, but I know that you guys, many people have asked, have you heard, have you heard, have you heard? Or if you don't follow our social media, it's another plug for that. You could have seen some, a picture of Wynn there. Um, just to update you, so continue to pray for Kurt and Lauren. And then as we get into this text today, um, we're going to invite you to, to stand as we read John chapter 6. Verses six through verses sixty through sixty nine, and then we're going to pray and kind of pray into to some of those things we talked about, and then get into it today. I promise, announcement time, but that is over. Um, so join me if you will. Stand with me if you will. Verses sixty through sixty nine. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, "This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it?" But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling said, do you take offense at this? And what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who, who those were who did not believe and who it would that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we just pray this morning as, as we get into uh, your word or continue to get into your word as we've already been in today, uh, that you just showcase yourself, show off yourself uh, and what can be sometimes hard to reconcile with the, the difficult things of the Lord? What do we, where do we stand when we're confronted with the difficult things of the Lord? I pray that you just show us yourself clearly, show us your way clearly. I pray, uh, again, just over this campus, I pray over its, um, just any spirit of darkness that feels like it has a right to be over this campus, I pray that, that you just, just obliterate that um, with the good news of who you are. I pray that over our city. I pray that this week, as, as we're invited to, to look at the life and legacy of a man in, in even just American history, that we see that um, it's much more than recognizing a man, but recognizing a, uh, a cause and recognizing a, a quest and, and seeing where we can contribute as the kingdom of God in 2019 um, to join the work of Jesus, and not just the work of justice, but the work of Jesus. Uh, Jesus, we, we believe that... Um, Dr. King said the moral arc of the universe always bends towards justice, but we believe that the moral arc of the universe always bends towards Jesus. And we pray that. We pray that over this city. We pray that over the work of our hands. We pray that uh, and, and issues of, of tension between uh, nationalities and ethnicities. We pray that in tensions between um, life and choice, we pray that in, in tensions of all those things that we see the kingdom of God come and use us. Showcase us to be means of grace, champions of your glory, and champions of your kingdom as we step into those areas. We pray today uh, just for our time together. Um, 
We pray that you just continue to draw us and uh, form us and conform us to the pattern of you. And in your holy and precious name, we ask these things. Amen. You guys can be seated. Thanks for bearing with me through some of that stuff. I, I think sometimes we, we don't shine enough of a light on some of those things and really not just use them as a platform to talk about, but to invite to, to pray through. Um, so we're going to get into to John chapter 6. I promise this is the last time we're going to be in John 6. So we've been in it for like five or six weeks now, uh, kind, of, kind of moving and slowly plodding our way through it. But it begs the question for us, uh, which is what do we do when we're confronted with the hard things of God? And, and sometimes, because you see that highlighted uh, right out of the gate, you see that, that Jesus kind of saying, the, the verses we're really going to focus on here um, are, are really verse 66 through 69, where, where he says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and were no longer with him because it was such a hard word. Like verse 60, this is a hard thing. Like, who can listen to it? Many of whom their response was to turn and walk away. And so if we're, we're asking the question of what, what, how, what do we do when we're confronted with the difficult things of God? Now, we could preach a whole sermon series on like some hot topic, difficult things of God. But the truth is, is, is all of us, like we can get fired up about the general ones. But at the end of the day, we're probably all more, much more confronted with a personal one. We're probably much more confronted with a thing that we think should have happened or not happened or gone a certain way. And, and even in asking a few of you and, and kind of putting some things together, you know, I was like, what are some of the hard things to reconcile or to walk with or to deal with when it comes to understanding God? And it could be things like God's sovereignty. Like, how does he in control of everything when I look around the world and it seems so out of control? Like how, you know, I hear news stories all the time of bombing in the Philippines or a, a, a natural disaster here or wildfires or, or tornadoes or hurricanes or tsunamis. And, you know, how is God in control? How are we supposed to trust him? How are we supposed to see him as a great king when I look around and the world's out of control? Or, or what are we supposed to do when bad things happen? Most importantly, what are we supposed to do when bad things happen to people that we think, quote, don't deserve it? or to good people, or, or what happens when our prayers that we think are so rooted in like a, a view of God's kingdom, what happens when those prayers don't go answered the way we want them to? You know, to quote the famous American prophet Garth Brooks, do we really thank God for our unanswered prayers? Or, or what about the big asks of Jesus? Like, if you take up your cross and follow me, like that's hard. Or, or if, if you give, sell everything you've got and give it away, like that's what it means to be my disciple. Or, or to let the dead bury the dead and not worry about it. Or at one point he even says, you gotta, if you really want to love me, you've got to hate like your mom and your dad and your family and all these other people in your life and chase after me. Like those are hard, difficult sayings and difficult things to be confronted with. And so how do we reconcile them? How do we stay the course when a difficult thing of the Lord hits us face up? How do we do that? And so as we kind of look in today, that's it's going to be the general theme that we talk about today, um, is we see that there's really three, three things that we're going to end up doing, and sometimes we might do all three of them. Uh, one of three or, or all three of them. And it's, it's this, like there's, there's kind of three things. So the first one would be that we start to recognize Jesus on, a, on our own terms. We might walk away or that we can endure. 
Now, we're going to hopefully shoot towards the endure part. But it's going to come with the confession that, I don't know about you, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I've probably been all three. And sometimes there's weeks that I'm all three. Um, and I do, we'll get to it a little more. When I say walk away, I don't mean forever. But I mean kind of a grass is greener kind of mentality of, God, is that really true of you, God? So, so let's kind of dive into these. When we're confronted with the hard things of God, what is our response? What is our, what is our, our posture? What might we do? The first thing is we understand Jesus on our, on our own terms. And really under that, the first little point I'm going to make is we hear what we want to hear. Do y'all ever been around people, had a conversation, you felt like you were crystal clear on one end? said exactly the way you feel or the way you think, and they're sitting on the other side of the table or the other side of the couch or in the passenger seat of the car, and they're like nodding along, and they acknowledge every word that you said, but they did not hear you. Do you know what I'm talking about? Or maybe you've been on the receiving end of that. Maybe you've heard something different than what someone was trying to communicate. Uh, A classic place that we might awkwardly all maybe have some connectivity in us. This often happens in breakup conversations. You know, like somebody's wanting to like really let somebody down easy and not pour it on too hard or say anything too harsh. And so they kind of like leave the door cracked and somebody hears something or they want to hear it because they don't want to, they don't want it to be as personal about themselves. And then as it keeps going, it just gets a little awkward until we have to have another conversation that everyone understands. You know what I'm talking about? And so maybe you've experienced these before, um, but if you, you've been in relationship at all, I guarantee you, and I don't mean romantically, just a relationship with anybody, friend or otherwise, family, whatever, you have heard what you've wanted to hear before. And for some of you, for some of us, that can be even a tragic flaw, like I can always hear what I want to hear or think what I want to think. And really that's a greater understanding of, of when it comes to, if we want to add some, some churchy words to this. When it comes to our recognition of the Bible, most of us start with the meology before we start with the theology. Like the person that is the center of our, our understanding or the center of our reasoning or the center of our logic or the center of, 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 of you know, the focus of our study of Jesus really is oftentimes me. And, and, and you're, not, you're not in horrible company. Uh, you're in company with a lot of people in the Bible, uh, most, most notably, you're in company with a guy named Job. And uh, as he kind of, if you've ever read the story of Job or know anything about the story of Job, he took the brunt of, of a lot of testing and a lot of tribulation and a lot of suffering so that the Lord might showcase Job's faithfulness to God in the midst of trial and turmoil. But everybody wants the book of Job to be like four chapters, they want it to be like, oh, God saw Job was faithful. God allowed Job to be tested. Job didn't, you know, say he responded well to the testing. Uh, he endured and praised the Lord. And then God gave it all back. You know, five chapter book of Job. But it's not five chapters. It's like, I think, 42 chapters. And, and the reason that it's 42 chapters is because grief and suffering and turmoil and strife and pain and trial and tribulation, they are never short stories. Amen. They're never just five chapters. They're always going to be longer and involve more than you think you have to give. And if you know anything about this book, their counsel that he gets from his wife and even his best friends, and it's 
not good counsel. And it's not that these people were trying to set him up to fail. They weren't, they weren't trying to sell him a bill of goods. They were just giving him advice that had Job in the center. And when Job finally confronts God about these things that have been wrestling with in his heart and in his mind, you, you, you see the story of Job and you think, oh, Job's the good guy that, that you know, lost everything. And he's the sympathetic protagonist in the story. But in Job 38, when God shows up to answer Job, you realize that there's only room for one good guy. It's not Job or his friends. It's not his wife or his family. There's only room for one good guy in the story of Job, and it's God. Job 38 and 39 are God saying to Job, like, were you there when I determined how high to take the mountains? Like, were you there when I told the ocean it could only come this far? Were you, have you ever clutched the Pleiades, which is a constellation? Have you ever clutched it in your hand? You know, have you ever, have you ever shut the mouth of the Leviathan or, or the behemoth? And, 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 and God kind of like basically big times Job in a way that he can and only he can as a supreme sovereign creator. And it leaves us to realize that in, in the story of my understanding of God, a lot of times I struggle hearing what I want to hear, putting God in my own terms, putting Jesus in my own terms, or starting with a meology. Malachi chapter 1, verse, around verse 15, it says God is, is saying this, and this is the last chapter before. There's no words. There's no revelation centuries before Jesus and he says, I'm a great king. I'm a great king. You need to see me as a great king. Well, the problem is, is sometimes for us, for us to understand God as a great king, we have to also say, but, but hey, on your watch, like bad things are still happening. How do we, what, what do we do with that? How do we live in that tension? I think for many of us, it's dealing with things that I have titled thirds of the gospel. A lot of us sometimes only live in one third of the gospel. One third of the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus, is that Jesus Christ paid your debt, paid your ransom, purchased you, was a sacrificial substitution for you on his cross so that you could stand right before God. Like he gave, he took your sin. That's one third of the gospel. A second third of the gospel is you get his righteousness. Now, some people say that those are the halves, that there's only two parts. Notice I said third, so we're going to get to the other one. So one third is Jesus' payment for your sins. Another third, and we'll get us to two thirds, is his righteousness in place of your unrighteousness. And this is a beautiful truth. Because what this means is that the point that God has judged in your favor, you know, we talk about this as we come to communion, to communion tables, that when we approach the table, that it is, uh, it is drinking and eating judgment on your life. Like, whoa, 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 that's kind of weighty. Like, that's kind of scary. But that word judgment is, seems to be terrifying for us. You know, we kind of have that view of, of that the gavel's not already down. Well, friend, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you've confessed and believed and repented and, and call Christ your treasure and your king, then judgment should be a great word for you. Because he's already judged in your favor already from now on. Doesn't matter. And that's like, whoa, hold on. You mean 
Like, I can never undo. No, you can never undo that. No double jeopardy in the kingdom or the court system of God. Like, you can never be tried again for that which he has already freed you from. That's great news. And, and not just that, but so one third of the gospel is Jesus' payment for your sin. Another third, second third of the gospel is that, that every one of your missteps, he declares as if they were righteous from the get-go. What incredible. Like, so good at... He's so good at redemption that he even undoes all the wrongs that you, places that you treaded or the paths that you took. But the third third, actually the first, it's actually the first third, is before we get to understanding my sin towards Jesus. My sin on Jesus, Jesus' righteousness on me. There's another one. This is a really big church concept. It's called triple for three. Then here we go. You ready for this one? Write this one down. Imputation, triple imputation. Okay, and it's Adam's sin to me, my sin to Jesus, Jesus' righteousness to me. Okay, so if you read Romans chapter 5, it's like 1 through 14, talks about Adam's sin. What happened at the garden? Took, the tr- took of the fruit and ate it. Because of that, all creation fell, which means that from the get-go, from your first breath, Born with the sin nature, Adam's sin, the sin through one man, is imputed on every single person. And the reason that that's important for us to understand is because that's where our meology starts. That's where our concept of us and the sinner starts, is we start there. We start there as a person that can only see us. And the reason that that's important for us to understand, that that's a, a very important third of the gospel, is for, for the fact that that like we don't start off with a lot of, when, we, when it comes to confronting some of these difficult things of God, like, yeah, it's fine for you to get fired up about, you know, like tragedies that happen on the world. It's fine for, for, for you to say, I don't know how God is good if, if tsunamis are happening, or, or and when I say fine, I mean, it's understandable. Um, I, don't, I don't understand how, how I can trust God to be good when this or that happens. But for most of us, I dare say all of us, we hide behind How can God be good if fill-in-the-blank happens? But if we're really, really honest, fill-in-the-blank is almost always personal. Before it's the tsunami in Indonesia, before it's a wildfire in California, before it's sexual exploitation and trafficking of women and children all over the world, before it's any of those things which which are injustices that absolutely should break your heart, before it's any of those things, most always... Our difficulty with the Lord starts off with a personal conflict. If I wanted this, this happened. It starts with our meology. And your meology is a third of the gospel. Adam, send to you. Meology. When I, start, when I believe in Jesus, when the Father draws my heart, when we're open to the beauty of who Christ is, my sin to Christ at the cross, Christ's righteousness to me, the three parts of the gospel. I wanted to point out that third, that Adam sinned to us as the initiation for our meology, because I think it's through that that I've reviewed this concept in Luke chapter 11. There's this moment in Luke chapter 11 where the disciples are talking to Jesus and they say, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? Now, part of me wants to say, and this could be true, that they see something significantly different about his relationship with the Father that they don't have and have never been invited into. And 
And I've used this a lot of times to challenge um, young people or even to challenge churches or to challenge like college ministries or student ministry when I was doing that in life of saying, of all the things the disciples could have asked Jesus, not like teach us to know the Bible in its original, well, they would have known it in its original language because they spoke it. Um, not, in, not in teach us how to study the Bible or, or teach us how to do even signs and wonders. They, their request was, Lord, teach us how to pray. Prayer should be really important. And I absolutely believe that. I believe that that is a, an absolute statement that we can walk away with. If the disciples saw Jesus' prayer life and desired it, we should too. So that, I'll give you that one. But the, the cynic in me says, did they want to know how to pray so they could get what they wanted? Because if you look at the rest of Luke chapter 11, if you look at the rest, Jesus unpacks for them not a formula of, hey, if you pray this way, God's going to give you exactly what you asked for. He unpacks that if you pray this way, God's going to give you himself. He actually tells the story of if you were to go to your neighbor's house in the middle of the night and knock on the door and eventually like just wore that neighbor out, I mean, like just pestered. It, the word is literally pestered or persisted. If you just pestered your neighbor, eventually your neighbor out of annoyance would come open the door. You know, in Kentucky, they'd probably come open the door with a shotgun, you know? Um, and his point is, Jesus' point is, if your annoyed neighbor will open the door for you, how much more will the heavenly father that loves you open the door to your request for everyone who asks, receives, everyone who seeks, finds, everyone who knocks, the door is opened, maybe not to the answer of your prayer, but always to the answerer of your prayer. And I think that this, like as I read through this, I see teachers how to pray. It's like, I wonder if I've asked the Lord to teach me how to pray, not so that I get more of him, but so that I get more of what I want. Because I tend to hear or see what I want to hear or see when I'm confronted with the difficult things of the Lord. The second point, some of us might walk away. We look at this verse that Peter quotes, or Peter says here in, uh, in verse 68. Simon Peter answered Jesus. Jesus had said, so, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Now, I think we might be giving Simon Peter too much credit that this was like a profound response. Do you know what I think? And I'm I actually heard John Piper talk about this, so I'm going to lean on his expertise more than mine. That in this verse, Lord, to whom shall we go, is an investigation. I've looked elsewhere. I don't know where else I can go. I've looked elsewhere. I don't, you know, like I've thought maybe another rabbi would ask me to follow him or, or, or maybe some other, some other things might present themselves. This is hard that you're teaching. I have looked elsewhere. So the question is, to whom shall we go? And then his response is, but as I've looked elsewhere, nobody offers what you're offering because you have the words of eternal life. And then he goes on to say, we believe and we've come to know. How have they come to know? Because they've been seeing this stuff lived out in front of them. Like they literally just saw him get in their boat, walk across water and get in it. Where one of the disciples that had five pieces of bread and two fish and saw him feed 20,000 people, like they've come to see his power the Holy One of God, and they recognize him as that. So Peter's response is, I've thought about it. Where, to whom shall we go? I, I don't know. I've, I've thought about it. And, and the reason that I, that sticks out to me 
is honestly a little comforting. Because I think there are times, if I'm honest, if you're honest, and you might be not expecting the person that pastors you or preaches to you to say this, there are times that I've thought, gosh, is it okay to have a doubt? Like, is, it, is it okay to walk, through, to walk into to hard truths or to difficult things or, or to these huge conflicts where I didn't get what I wanted? And maybe that was a job opportunity. Maybe it was a, a, the life of a loved one. Maybe it, was, maybe it was a relationship. Like, I was praying for this God. I was following you. I was being obedient. I was trying to do all these things. And yet, here I am, empty-handed. Why don't I have these things? And, and sometimes creeping in the back of my mind with the help of an enemy that we're going to get to in John 8, that when he speaks, he lies and he devours and he wants to murder you and walks around like a lion looking to devour you with the help of an enemy, says the same thing he's been saying since like the first three pages of the Bible. Did God really say that? Did God really promise you this stuff? Satan's lies have really never diverted from that. Did God really say you would die if you ate of that tree? Did he really mean that? And so I think I'm sympathetic with Simon Peter and saying, I've thought about looking for the grass to be greener somewhere else too. And and I'm willing to bet that every single person in here has. You want to know why? Because the Bible tells me you have. In John chapter 16, um, Jesus 14, John 14, 15, and 16 are kind of Jesus's discourse on the role that the Holy Spirit's going to play. When he comes, he calls him the helper. He calls him the advocate. And in verse six, in chapter sixteen, verse eight, this won't be on the screen. You can either look it up with me or take my word for it. In chapter sixteen, verse eight and nine, he says that when the helper comes, he will convict the world of sin. And there's the semicolon, and which means that we're about to have a a clausal statement that redefines what he just said. So. Convince the world of sin, and then there's going to be this clausal grammatical phrase that actually provides greater definition on what that sin is. When the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to convict the world of sin, semicolon, that they don't believe. Guess who's guilty of that? Don't raise your hand, but if we were honest, all of us. All of us. And not just like, I don't believe Jesus is the son of God, but it's, I don't know if Jesus is going to come through on that one. I think that one's up to me. <laughs> Have you ever thought that before? I don't know if I can trust Jesus. I don't know, or I don't even know if I need to waste his time. I don't even know if I want to believe in him in this area. I'm going to leave that one up to myself. All of us, all of us are guilty when we're confronted with the hard things of God or just the hard things of life to say, Jesus must do that for everybody else. And I hear those testimonies at church. I see them on Facebook or Instagram, and that's great that he's doing that for them, but when it comes to me, I just don't know if he works that way. I don't know if he does it that way for me. I don't know if it works in my favor like it does for all those people. When the helper comes, it's to convict you of your sin, namely the sin of unbelief. So just like Peter, all of us, all of us have a tendency to say, where else could we, where else not just would we go, but where else could we go? But it hopefully ends, ends up with the work of that helper into the last part, which is endurance, that we endure. Um, there's a couple things to look at here. I've got the verses listed second, but I want to actually start with them. Matthew 24, 13, it says that 
um, to he who endures to the end, to they that endure to the end, they'll be saved. First Peter chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Enduring sufferings or sorrows is a gracious thing, which means that it's the work of the grace of God. Uh, John 16, 1, so eight verses before the verse I just read for you about the role of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that he will keep us. He'll keep us. That he'll hold us. He'll keep us to the end. And that he will do, be, the, be the one to endure. So, so we talk about these places where our meology tends to leave us. That we hear what we want to hear. That we look for the grass to be greener on the other side of the fence. Um, one of my favorite songs, I'm a, I'm a fan of a musician named John Mayer. You can judge me or celebrate with me later, either one. Uh, but he has a song It was on one album. It uh, was on an album that that uh, was called a trio album, which was him and, and just a couple guys kind of playing some blues music, but it's called Another Kind of Green. And it's about this concept of, I don't need another kind of green to know that I'm on the right side. Amen. Like, I don't need to know what's the other on the other side of the fence to know that I'm on the right side already. And in some ways, I'm kind of like, man, I, I feel that way. Like, sometimes I need to know the other kind of green. And so my meology will leave me either in looking at other fences or hearing what I want to hear but it's the work of the Spirit, the work of the grace of Jesus that I endure suffering, the work of the Spirit of Jesus that he keeps me and holds me, the work of the Spirit that we endure to the end. And sometimes we say, we might say, but there's beauty on the other side of the journey. There's beauty on the other side of the journey of difficulty. There's just beauty on, right, right on the crest. And if you've ever like hiked or, or, or maybe done like an, maybe an intense journey or an intense hike, strenuous and you're journeying up a, a mountain and it's difficult and it's hard. Um, when you finally get to that place that you can see out, you finally get to the place that is the postcard moment or you finally get to the place that's the photo op, you're like, wow, like it was all worth it. And I think oftentimes we think the beauty is what we get to see on the other side of the journey or the other side of the difficulty or the other side of the suffering or through the valley, if we're going to use the peaks and valleys that so often we use in Christian metaphors. But friends, the beauty on the other side is the beauty that's with you every step of the way, and that's Christ. And I hope that you don't get to a destination of God's promise and see anything more beautiful than the one that walked with you and for you every step of the way. Every single one of us have a hope when we're confronted with the things and the conflicts that we wanted something and we didn't get it, and so we're pressing on, or, or, or to quote one of my favorite authors, the title of his book, uh, named Eugene Peterson, that we're along obedience in one direction or in the same direction. All of us think that when we get to the end of that, like we're going to get to finally breathe and finally take in the beauty, and some of us fail to realize that the beauty is who's with us every single step of the way. The promised land for Israel wasn't more beautiful than the God that was leading them on the journey. And the fact is, is through the entire Old Testament, Israel always failed to realize that. And we do the same. And when we look into this specific text, the thing that's difficult for them to hear is Jesus saying that in the same way that the Father provided things for them along the way, like he's provided Christ for them, he's provided himself, he's the Father has provided Jesus who's standing in front of them. And, and they're not taking this. They're not embracing it. They're not 
relating to it. They don't see it and they get really mad and they get, they're grumbly and, and they're frustrated because they, they, they are failing to see that the beauty is standing right in front of them. As we preached a couple of weeks ago, they're back just because they want their fill of more loaves. They want their appetites satiated as opposed to their hunger forever, forever fulfilled in the personal work of Jesus. And so we ask the question, how do we endure? If endurance is where we want to land, if, if, if when, we, when confronted with the hard things of God or the hard things of life or, or, or the things that maybe are run, you know, contrasting or run in tension with, yeah, but, but if I pray this, this is supposed to happen. Or if I think this, this is supposed to happen. Or if I believe this, this is supposed to happen. When, when tough stuff, when suffering comes our way, we're confronted with the hard things that we don't want to embrace. We either, we put Jesus on our own terms. We might walk away or spend even seasons away. Hopefully we land on enduring. So how do we endure? It's a threefold rhythm. How do we endure? We confess, we repent, and we believe. Now, you've probably heard this before uh, in like Bible school. Confess, believe, confess, repent, believe, and you're a Christian. Yay, you know. Um, but this is, should be the mark or the rhythm of your entire life as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so how do we endure? We confess, we repent, and we believe. Um, this is where I'll get a little more personal along the story of when I've been confronted with hard things of, of God or hard things of life. Um, I remember on, I remember in September, first part of October of 2016, um, you've heard, some of you know my story. Some of you've heard me talk about this before. Uh, my brother-in-law was diagnosed with uh, lymphoma. And it was a, something that rocked our family, uh, something that threw all of us in a little bit of a tailspin. And I'm going to be honest, like my, my dad's a pastor. Um, I'm a pastor. Tom faithfully loved Jesus. Sister faithfully walks with Christ. Um, I'm sitting around looking at this and I'm like, well, this, how does this happen? Like, what if we not, we should have been immune. I don't know if you've ever believed that or not, but this is my confession and how the enemy works is, is for me to think, well, I've done every, we've done everything you've asked, Lord. We have started church. Like we, 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 we get given our lives to your mission. This is not supposed to happen. Like this is not supposed to derail. The, the, this is just going to be one of those blips on the radar. Like we're going to have an awesome testimony through it. Like there's going to be an awesome healing that happens. And Tom's going to be on a speaking tour and write a book. And all these things are going to happen. And, and, and it, it never had good news, really, along the journey for 10 months. And I remember there was a night, this was like probably first week, where my mother and I, my, my sister was staying at the hospital with her husband. and um, We were going home to get like a go bag or like a stay bag at the hospital, take some clothes that needed to be washed. Mom was going to do the laundry. I'm going to get Tom and Laura a bag to be able to take back for them to spend a few days. And, you know, some little things in it, just some comforts from home and whatnot. And I remember, I can tell you, I can, they, they lived off of uh, Lucille Drive over in Masterson Station. On the way there, I can tell you where I pulled the car. If I could, some neighbor probably was like, who is parked right in front of my house right now? Um, because mom and I were talking, and my mother is a stalwart of the faith, just a sure and steady anchor in my life. Like I, From the time that I, on my own accord, use the bathroom in the mornings to get ready for school. Like I, I chose to wake up myself like at my alarm, 
bathroom, take a shower, all that stuff to get ready from school. So not like mom and dad yanking me out of bed until I don't know how old that was, like 10 or 11. But from basically that point on, there was never a day, my memory ever, that there wasn't a post-it note with the word of God on my mirror growing up as in my house, in the Eaton household, ever. Like mom woke up before I woke up, post-it note was on there. And so many in a row that the steam for the shower would fade the ones on the far left. You know, like you could barely even read them anymore. And always put the word of God in front of us as kids, in front of my family, driving on Lucille Drive. And my mom says, and, and, I, I, and I'm not saying this to say that she had a weak moment in her faith. I think she had a real moment. I think we all have had them. She says, Andrew, how am I going to, what are we going to do if Tom doesn't live? Like, what are we going to do? And I pulled the car over and we grabbed her hands and we cried for a moment. And, and I said, Mom, like, we're going to have to hold each other accountable to this. And this is not going to be an easy thing for me to say. We're going to have to hold each other accountable. If, if we worship Jesus more with our brother and our boy being healed, on this earth, and we would worship Jesus less if Tom died, then we're actually not seeing Jesus as the beautiful thing. We're seeing what he gives us or what we want as the beautiful thing. And we both sat there and we cried because we weren't convinced or, or that our heart was really more in the, I, I hear you, but I would rather have Tom. I would rather have that. That's the confession. I hear you. And it, it took, it's still, on, it's still on that journey, friends, of me being able to see Jesus as better than what I thought would have been the better outcome. And I know it here, right? Like that's the thing. It's the 18 inches that's the danger, right? The, the distance between here and here. Knowing truth and feeling truth are two totally different things. And so I, I'm coming at this from a point of, of, how do we endure? We confess, we repent, and we believe. I'll get back to the story. We confess the first point, and it's, it's a word that we probably use incorrectly most of the time. We think confession is telling the truth. That is not what confession means. Confession is the Greek word homologeo, and, and it literally means, so, so hom, the, the Greek prefix H-O-M-O, homo, means same, and then our word means same. And then legeo is of, of basically where we get logos from, which is the word. It means that we're in agreement. So when I confess to the Lord, it's not that I'm telling him something that he doesn't know. Or it's not that it's like a good exercise for me to just be like, I know you already know this, but I've done this, this, and this. Okay, that's not what confession is. Confession is to say, God, your definition or your, your way is right, and I'm in agreement with it. I'm in agreement that the way I've been walking, I'm confessing that the way I've been walking is, is wrong or running counterclockwise to the things that you would have for my life. It's not a moment of honesty. It's a moment of agreeing with God and his standard. So when we start off with how do we endure, it starts off with us confessing that his way really is better. And I would love to tell you that you always do that through a smile, but you don't. Amen. And if you've talked to anybody that's been on the, on the faith longer than you, they'll tell you that there are times that they agree with the Lord through gritted teeth. And they're in good company because there's plenty of characters in the Bible that have done that too. They've agreed with the Lord 
through difficulty and through even saying, oh, like, I know it's right. I know his way is right. And, and even just positioning and posturing ourselves there to say, God, like your way is right. And the way that I've been doing it is wrong. I'm in agreement with you that my way is wrong. I'm agreement with, in agreement with you that the thing I wanted was short-sighted and incomplete. I'm in agreement with you that the thing that I thought was better wasn't better. And, and depending on what that is, that can be really weighty sometimes. That could be everything from the boyfriend or girlfriend you wanted, the job you wanted, or like, and I, I even question my ability to say this, like, God, I don't know how, I don't know how, I don't know how this is true, but somehow I agree with you that my brother-in-law not being with us anymore is better. And I'm telling you, I don't, I don't say that through a 100% convinced mindset. But I have to start with a confession that he knows what he's up to. He's a great king, that he's good, and that my standard or my definition needs to conform to his way, not his way conform to mine. The second one is that we repent. Repentance literally means a change of direction. A friend that's actually preached here, his name is John Withers, says this to me all the time, and I love his definition. He says, when do we repent? When we become aware that we're going the wrong way. So when's a good time for you to repent? When you're aware that you're going the wrong way. The fact that you're aware to it is, is evidence of the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's where the enemy slips in. Because some of you need to repent today, and you should have repented on that same pathway 50 other times. Here's where the enemy gets you, okay? So I got to point this out. As you turn to start walking the other way, the enemy is going to tell you you're a failure for not repenting all the 50 times that you have to walk past by because you've now chosen to repent. That's not Jesus. Secondly, if you think the thing that's causing you to repent is guilt or shame, that's also not Jesus. Now, he's still in there desiring for you to repent, but if you read the, the Bible, if you know in, in the book of Romans, it said it's not God's guilt or his shame that would ever cause you to repent. It's his kindness. It's his kindness that says, hey, Andrew, I know you've had a hard time trusting me when it comes to some of these things. I know you've had a hard time trusting that I still know what's best for your sister, and it and it includes, like, somehow in all that mix, the fact that she's widowed is in there. I still know, I still want what's best. I still have a plan. I'm not done with this story. I know you disagree with me, but I still love you. Come back. See what I can see. See from my vantage point. Come join me. Walk back this way. And so repentance is a change of direction. And when is the appropriate time to repent? When you've noticed you're going the wrong way. Doesn't matter where it is. So if it's today, friends, but going the wrong way. Today's a good day to turn around and then to believe. Confess, repent, believe. Um, Mark 1.15, it says, repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. John 16.9, we talked about it earlier, that the Holy Spirit is working to convict you of your unbelief, convict you of the places that it struggles. And then I have a question mark here. It's not supposed to be, but bear with me on a grammar typo. The, the gospel informs, the gospel informs our endurance? It does. It does. Um, on June the 20th, on June the 20th, 2017, I uh, went and picked up a, uh, I think it's a blimey limey slushy or smoothie from Tropical Smoothie, if there's any Tropical Smoothie fans in the house, um, and took it to Tom as he was battling through chemo. Uh, he had mouth sores and stuff, and so he really wanted um, a, a 
blimey limey smoothie. That was his go-to. And so I, we got ourselves each one, and I went and hung out, and there was a NBA basketball game on that night. I think it was the, around the time of the finals, and then I was going to watch This Is Us later, you know, because it's guilty pleasure. Um, so I was hanging out with him for a little while, and I was putting in time while Laura was getting some time away to kind of recoup. And uh, I'm like halfway into slushy, and Tom looks up at me from his hospital bed, and he said, hey, um, I want you to preach my funeral. And a special conversation, but not an easy one. Um, and I was like, no, no, no. And he's like, no, it's okay. And like, we both cried together and talked about it. And he said, I want you to preach my funeral because I'm really afraid that there's going to be people on a microphone that are going to get up and talk about how awesome I was. And he said, I need you to preach it because I need to tell you this. There's going to be people at my funeral that don't know who Jesus is. And they're going to have a real tendency to celebrate a guy that was a teacher to their kids or a guy that they knew growing up or, you know, a guy that worked a camp for them or a guy that went to their church. And they're going to tell stories and we're going to smile and we're going to talk about things. And I'm really afraid that if somebody doesn't do it on purpose, that people will walk away from Tom Cameron's funeral knowing more about Tom than they will about Jesus that saved him. And he said, so I need you to preach my funeral because I need you to preach the gospel not tell stories about Tom. And it was one of the most profound conversations I've ever been a part of. And I thought to myself, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? How am I going to preach about this when this is a place that it's me confronting a hard thing? And ultimately, my confession, my repentance, and my belief in Jesus is informed by the truth of the gospel. And this is how we're going to kind of close today. Isaiah chapter 53 um, is this story where we can, I think we can read it on the screen. I think I've got it. It says this. Surely he, this is a prophet Isaiah speaking in future times. Surely he, talking about the one that is to come, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, each turned to his own way. All of us have thought grass is greener on the other side. And the Lord has laid upon him that iniquity of us all. I love how it starts off. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You know that thing that's happened in your life that says, I just don't know if I can trust God. Or I keep coming back to this. Or if this would have worked out differently. Or if this would have worked out better. Or, or this doesn't happen for me. It happens for everybody else at that Commonwealth City Church. This doesn't happen for me. That sorrow or that grief that you have, that loss, that lacking, that inadequacy, or that deficit that you feel. And I know that we all feel them. And if you don't feel them, an unfortunate promise is at some point you probably will. When I used to speak on suffering or grief or loss, I used to be terrified because I had never really suffered. And I knew knew that that was coming. That promise in Revelation that it, when he makes all things new, he's going to wipe away every tear. The prereq is that you will have cried them. It's coming. And so when that deficit occurs and when that hard thing to reconcile with God happens in your life, I need you to look back at Isaiah 53. I need you to remember this. Write this down. 
look back and say, that grief that you're feeling, that deficit that you're facing, that inadequacy that you think is a chasm between you and the Lord, that thing that you feel like you're lacking, that loss that you wished would have been a gain, he bore the grief of that sorrow. That's the foundation of the gospel that we have in Jesus. And then here's the super, 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 not the best news. The best news is we have that foundation, but the really good news that's also true in wake of it is that your posture, that, that foundation does not depend on your posture. And here's what that means. Here's why that's good news. Because friends, there's times, and I don't know the severity of what grief or suffering or loss or trial or tribulation is going to be for you. I have no idea. But there's going to be times where the most comfortable position on that glorious truth that he has borne our suffering and he bears our griefs and our sorrows. The most comfortable position of you is going to be a fetal position where you don't know what to do. Guess what? There's room for it in the foundation of the gospel. There's going to be times that you can stand victorious. There's room for it in the foundation of the gospel. But the glorious good news of Jesus is because he's borne it, your posture is allowed. And so however long you need to take for the truth of God to sink in to your suffering, to your sorrow, to your pain, to your doubt, to your thing that you're lacking, to your deficit, there's room for it at the cross. But there's also the promise of a resurrection, that the greatest things that we hope to gain in this life are in this life. And that's the good news, that there's a day that's coming that will make everything sad untrue, as the writer in the storybook Bible says, that will make everything that's ever been sad untrue. And you will have endured some things. You will have come face to face with some difficulties. You will have come face to face with some sufferings. That's a promise. But as you stand, confess, repent, and believe in the gospel, as you stand on the foundation that God knows what he's doing, that he's not dropped the ball, that he's not off the throne, that he, all those griefs and sorrows and emotions that you feel viscerally, he bore them all. As you stand on that, it's okay to be Indian style sometimes. It's okay to be in the fetal position sometimes. It's okay to be doing jumping jacks of celebration sometimes. The posture of us is not nearly as important as the foundation of the finished work of Christ. And our confession, repentance, and belief in that is to return to the foundation that we have in Jesus. And then in letting that be massaged into our hearts by this helper that he's given us is to stand victoriously as exactly what the Bible says we are, more than conquerors, never separated from the love of God, victorious in all things, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. As we come to the table today, as we take, eat, and remember, in the same way that he said today, take my flesh and drink of my blood. That's how you become part of me. As we take, eat, and remember, we're taking, eating, and remembering of the work on the cross and the work to defeat the grave. And we're also doing that in participation with what it means to be a fellow member, dearly loved son and daughter in the kingdom of God. And today, if you're not a believer in Jesus, if today you've had too many confrontations with the hard things of life to see him, I pray that the Holy Spirit tells you it's okay to turn around. I'll take you where you are. Walk the other way. Turn towards me and believe in the foundation that Jesus has set for you so that you could stand triumphant over sin and shame, 
triumphant over death in the grave, triumphant over the work of the enemy, and forever loved and beloved as a family, the family of God. I invite you to that today. If you want someone to pray with you today, they'll be in the foyer in the back. If you want to come find me or maybe even just pray with somebody that brought you, we encourage you to do that as well. Um, but stand with me if you will. We'll go into our time of response and worship, to our time of communion, uh, and to our time of repenting and believing the gospel.